You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together and turn this morning to the Acts of the Apostles. We read from chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, to the end of the chapter. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akaldema, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and... May another take his place of leadership. And therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been sent, who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. I preached to you this morning, as you find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he was taken up. You find that same expression in the second verse of Acts chapter 1. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did you remember? Remember what? Did you remember Ascension Day? If the comments last week of a few of you are in the indication, then a lot of you forgot, or you only remember later on in the day. For some reason, Ascension Day is hard to remember. I have to admit that even I, as a pastor who should have had that day circled long ago, managed somehow to double book it. And we ask ourselves, why is that? Is it because our calendars, by and large, do not list Ascension Day? Is it because it's not a public holiday? Is it because Madison Avenue, the mecca of advertising, has not discovered it or managed somehow to market Ascension Day? Or is it just because it's a plain old hard sell? You know, it's one thing to celebrate a miraculous birth or a most astounding resurrection. But it's another thing to get all excited about a departure. After all, by their very nature, departures are sad and often rather depressing. Unless it's someone you really don't like, it's hard to set aside a special day to commemorate the fact that someone you know is going away. So where does that leave us? Should we skip or forget all about Ascension Day? Or should we perhaps skip from Easter to Pentecost with no stops whatsoever in between? What do you think? Well, let's reflect on that together this morning. I preached to you on the theme, Celebrating Christ's Ascension, Why Bother? And we bother, as we shall see, because it signifies the elevation of Christ and his church. It signifies the renovation of his world. It signifies the consolation of all of his followers. Well, beloved, when we turn to the Bible and see what it has to say about the ascension and how it describes that particular event, we might be led to say, it's no wonder that this day receives so little attention. After all, it doesn't receive a lot of attention in the scriptures either. Only Luke and Mark mention it, and they do so mostly in passing. 
Whereas all of the other highlights of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection are all told in great detail, this one is sorrily lacking in details. Perhaps it's not really such a big deal after all. But nevertheless, beloved, if that is our conclusion this morning, it may be somewhat premature, if not also kind of superficial. Because really, it does fail to take into account a number of central facts that relate directly to the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you ask what facts, well, the first is, you can say, that the ascension actually represents an act of triumph. For look at it this way. When our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, how exactly did he come? We would say he came in lowliness and humility. He came in poverty and weakness. He came bearing our guilt. He came to shoulder our punishment. He, he came to a people heading towards hell. So what did he do for us? He turned his life and our life with him around. He redirected us from hell to heaven. And how? Well, listen to the following dialogue. He asks, what must I do to open heaven? And the reply is, you must keep the law perfectly. To which he answers, that law I have kept completely. He asks again, what more must I do? And the reply is, you must bear the punishment of man's sin. And he answers, I've borne it. And the questioner asks once more, what else is there? You must die in a cursed death, to which he replies, I have died such a death on the cross. And so it is asked, is there anything else that he needs to do in order to deliver his people? And the reply, beloved, is there is nothing else for him to do. He's finished his task. He's paid the price. He's kept the law. He's conquered death and the grave. He's done the Father's will perfectly. And the result of this, beloved, is that heaven's door stands wide open to receive him in triumph. He has gained the victory over sin, Satan, and death. He's triumphed. But there is more for in all of this just mentioned, there is something else. And that is, you can also say that the ascension is not just representative of his triumphs, but also of the completion of his earthly work. When Christ is taken up before their eyes, as it says in our text, into heaven, it means that all of his earthly work, his earthly task is done. In that regard, it's interesting to note that the gospel, according to Luke, ends with the ascension. And thereby, it signals that the earthly part of his reconciling work is over. 
You see, the ascension marks the end of his work of saving, redeeming, sacrificing, paying, and satisfying the will of God. He came to save his people from their sins. And when he leaves at last, it testifies that his saving work is all done. He has redeemed his people. So, beloved, the ascension represents the triumphs of Christ, the fact that he can write finished over his redeeming work. But you know, the ascension also has to do with his transformation. What do I mean by that? Well, you can say Jesus Christ, our Lord, has always been unique. Before his birth, he was already the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. At his birth, he added our humanity to his divinity. But now, after his resurrection, as he ascends, he ascends as still a different person. For when he goes into heaven, how does he go there? He goes there, you could say, as God. He goes there as man. But then note that he especially goes there as man transformed, as man raised, exalted, perfected, and eternalized. He's man, but he's a far different man. And you know, earlier there had been a hint of that. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he appeared before the eyes of Peter, James, and John as a transformed individual. It says in that part of Scripture, Luke 9, that his appearance was changed. His clothes were blazing white and bright. It says that they saw Moses and Elijah together with him in glorious splendor. It also says that the two even spoke to him about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment that says at Jerusalem. And together then, these disciples receive already a foretaste of Christ as he would be in his heavenly glory. The coming down was in humiliation. The going up is in exaltation and transformation. But then, beloved, there's also something else, and that is, excuse another big word, representation. What do I mean by that word? Well, it means that Christ going up is not to be understood as an isolated, solitary, individualistic kind of act. True, he goes up alone, but there is a sense in which he is alone no longer. For ask yourself, when he goes up, how does he go? Doesn't he go as the head, as the king, as the leader? Doesn't he go as the representative head of a huge and mighty throng of people? 
Earlier years before, he had come down alone. But you know, the psalmist says that when he goes up, it's as if he's leading a great procession of people. The Apostle Paul calls him the first fruits of a glorious harvest. The blade, the ear. The psalmist insists that this is the triumphant returning, surrounded and accompanied king. You see, there is a sense in which in his ascension, Christ Jesus takes all of his people up with him already. Interestingly, scripture comments that when Abraham and Melchizedek met, Levi was already in the loins of Abraham. That's an interesting way of putting it. Well, you can say in a sense that when Christ goes up, all of his people are in, as it were, the loins of Christ. In a sense, all of the saints are going up with him. And if you ask going up where? Of course, to heaven, to the throne of God, to the headquarters of the universe. Because you see, ascension also stands for promotion. You know, if you look at the church, up until now, the church has been almost exclusively tied to this earth. Through much of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the church is connected to an earthly sanctuary, an earthly priesthood, earthly sacrifices, earthly ceremonies, but when Christ descends, it's as if the old passes away and the new comes. You know, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says to the believers of his day, you people have come. And listen to the language. You've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn. When after the ascension, the church on earth worships her God, It's as if she comes, says Hebrews, to Mount Zion. As if we're participating in the worship and life of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that makes sense. For where is our king today? He's at the headquarters in heaven. Where are the angels? Where is the church of the firstborn? Where are all the saints of the past? They're in heaven. Yes, and if he is there, they are there. All who believe in him are in a sense there already. Because you see, our king is there, our names are there. Paul says our, our commonwealth is there. And we are finally going there. And of course, in many ways, that's a mystery. 
It's something you can only see if you have the eyes of faith. But yet it's real. And you know, it comforts us as we continue to travel through this life with its ups and its downs, its achievements and its setbacks, its good things and its miserable things. We know as the people of God where we're going. We don't need to doubt our destination. We don't need to worry about our reception. If you belong to Christ, if you're in the head, your promotion and your life and your glory is guaranteed. It's all sure. But you know, there's something else that's also sure, and it has to do with this world, this created realm in which we live every day. For when Christ goes up as the head of his church, he also goes up, you can say, as the head of a new creation. At one time, this creation was linked to Adam the first head. But now, thanks to the ascension, it is linked to Christ, the second Adam. If you want a glimpse of that, perhaps there's no better place to look than in Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you know that letter a little bit, it's not that long, but if you know that letter, you know that in the first chapter... It speaks all about the surpassing supremacy of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it calls him the firstborn over all creation. It says in him everything holds together. He describes as the head of the body, the church. And it says that in everything he has the supremacy. And Paul adds... That through Christ, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So you see, the picture that emerges is the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But also one more thing. The picture that emerges is Christ as the restore of all things. The first Adam separated heaven and earth because of his sin and rebellion. But look, the second Adam brings it all back together again. The first Adam brings death and destruction. The second Adam brings life and renewal. You know, that's a bit the picture that emerges out of the letter to the Colossians. But you know, it's a picture that comes to even fuller bloom and expression in the book of Revelation. For in Revelation we meet a renewed, a sanitized, 
a refurbished and a renovated creation. It's our world, but it's our world made new. It's our life, but it's our life forever changed. You know, there are some people who think that when Christ returns, this world will be completely burned up and eradicated. That it's simply going to be no more and God is going to start all over again from scratch or less than scratch. Total annihilation, these people say, is coming. But you know, that's not the picture from the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And you need to take special note of the word new. The Greek language sometimes uses the word neos for new. And then it means new in terms of time and in terms of origin. But there's also another Greek word for new, which is the word kainos, which means new in terms of nature or quality. So which new is used here in Revelation 21? It's that word kainos, meaning that God will renew the nature of our world Or otherwise, he's going to change its character, its quality. He's not going to destroy it and start all over again. He's going to take it and he's going to make it new again. As it was in the beginning. Yes, and in this way, too, our God is going to answer the groaning you find in Revelation chapter 8. It may have struck you in Revelation 8. The believers are groaning. The Holy Spirit is groaning. And Paul says, especially all of creation is groaning. And why is it groaning? Well, because of what sin has done. And what is it looking forward to? Well, Paul says it's looking forward to its liberation from its bondage to decay. And it's waiting for this with eager expectation. That's really the way of saying it's standing on its tiptoes, waiting and looking forward to a better day. Yes, and now when Jesus Christ ascends into the heavens, we know, and all creation knows, a better day is coming. It's coming for all of the children of God. But it's also coming for all of creation. And so, beloved, what the Lord Jesus does here in our text, through his ascension, pays huge dividends for himself, for his people, for his creation.
and also for each and every one of us personally. I realize that perhaps that's not immediately and obviously apparent. As we mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, we often look at ascension and we kind of yawn. What does it really mean? What does it really signify? What is it really good for? But you know, we need always to understand and to realize that the departure of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven is not a normal thing. It really is exceptional. It really is as well to our advantage. You know, the Apostle John records the Lord Jesus as saying to his disciples and to us as well, it's for your good that I'm going away. So why is this departure for our good? Well, a couple of things come to mind. The first is that it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. For the Lord Jesus says, it's not just good that he goes. He also says that if he doesn't go, the counselor isn't coming. If Christ doesn't go up, the Spirit will not go down. And think of it. What a huge loss that would be. For consider what Still, after all that Christ has done, what still needs to happen? We said already Christ has done it all. So what's next? Well, beloved, you can say what's next is that all of this glory and all of this salvation and all of this redemption needs to be applied It needs to be applied to your heart, to my heart, to the heart of all of God's people. And that's also what the Lord Jesus says in in the Gospel of John. He says, if the Spirit doesn't come, there'll be a loss because the world needs it. Sin needs it. Righteousness needs it. Judgment needs it. For when Christ comes and when He sends the Spirit... The Spirit is the one who convicts the world. The Spirit is the one who drives away sin. The Spirit is the one who reveals God's righteousness. The Spirit reveals God's judgment over Satan. You see, there will be no application of the saving work of Jesus Christ to our lives Unless Christ goes and the Spirit comes. So you can say that the ascension of our Lord is necessary to move the work of Christ forward into all of our hearts. Yes, and the ascension is also necessary... You can say as well, if our lives are to have the right focus, 
You know, the Apostle Paul also makes that clear in his letter to the Colossians, for there, after describing this great and glorious work of, of Jesus Christ, then and he says in chapter 3, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Hear the representative language, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, he says, on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. You know, it's so easy, so natural, so automatic that we set our eyes and our hopes and our affections on the things that are here below. Whether it's human in terms of a boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's material in terms of a car or a possession of one kind or another or a toy, we tend to set our hearts almost automatically on the things that we see, that we can touch, that we can feel, that we can discern. But you know, so often those are the things below. Those are the things that don't last. Marriage isn't forever. Cars rust. Toys lose their fascination. The things below in the end do not satisfy. And they certainly do not save. And sometimes in the end they'll even kill you. But not the things that are above. Those are the things that will keep your life focused. Those are the things that will fill your earthly life with heavenly hope. Those are the things that will keep you anchored in Jesus Christ. The risen and ascended Lord. So, beloved, realize, and we can go on and on, but realize... That no matter how you look at it, the ascension of our Savior is all gain for us. I ask you, what more could he have accomplished by staying down here with us? And what more does he not accomplish by going up to his throne? By sitting there, by ruling from there, by protecting us from there, by preparing the future for us from there. Truly is going away. Strange as that may sound, is to our advantage and benefit. And it is a reason for continual celebration and constant reminder. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.